You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange with Sarah Raven and me, Arthur Parkinson. And in this episode, we're joined by a wonderful friend of ours, Anna Potter, who you might know from Instagram land, who goes under the name of Swallows and Damsons. Anna runs an incredible and beautiful floristry business in Sheffield, which isn't far away from where I'm from in Nottinghamshire. And Anna is joining myself and Sarah from Sheffield today. Hi both. Hi, thank you for having me. Anna's book, The Flower Fix, is honestly one of my favourite flower books that's come out in the last five years. I completely love it. And I love it because of its style, which Arthur's already alluded to. I mean, Anna's flowers are exceptionally beautiful. And every single picture that I see of her flowers, or when I'm lucky enough to see them in the flesh, they just sort of They just cheer you up and refresh you and make you think differently about things and differently about the flowers that I've been growing here for years. But also, I love this book because it's so generous, Anna. And so will you sort of tell us a bit about your story, how you set up your background in fine art and and all that? Yes, yes, of course. And thank you for those very, very kind words about the book and... um, yeah, about my flowers. I did a, a degree in fine art at Sheffield Hallam. And as when I finished the degree, it was really an absolute unknown. Didn't know which area I wanted to go into. I think sometimes that's the, the thing with a, a fine art degree is it's wonderful and creative and you can go down whichever avenue you choose to creatively. But it's also very difficult to sort of hone in on a job as such, which <laughs> I hate saying that because, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I do think a lot of people who study fine art then sort of find themselves in the position they're like, what, what is it that I want to do now or can do? And um, it was actually Becky Crowley who got me a job in a florist where she was working. So it was all very small, all very local. And, um, and we just need to explain a little bit about Becky, just because yes. um, our listeners won't know about her. So she is the cut flower grower at Chatsworth, and she is actually now in America with Erin from Florette doing a, a, a yes. sort of stint in the States. But you were at university with her, weren't you? We were, and we lived together, yeah, and everything. And um, she was working, she'd got a job in, in a florist just around the corner from where we lived. And that's where she started as well. And she um, was like, oh, they, they need someone else. I think you'd love it. And everyone I told, uh, I went for the job and I got it. And everyone I told I was going to be a florist just sort of laughed at me. I yeah. don't know why. It was at yeah. the time, I think specifically, it was people saw it as quite a dull yeah, and, thing to do. And no status, did it? I mean, it was like, no, because they all. assumed you were working with carnations and croissants both of course which are now very trendy but they, were, they <laughs> yeah, weren't then exactly um, and it's sort of alstroemeria again Arthur and I are a great <laughs> champion of love an alstroemeria these days <laughs> we do <laughs> amazing <laughs> but it, it's so true that everybody kind of assumed floristry was really old-fashioned didn't they 
Anyway, back to yeah. you. I'm not going to hijack your story. No, no. And um, and even myself, I was like, I didn't really know what I was getting into and very much surprised myself in the first couple of weeks where I was just, I was sold on it. I was absolutely smitten. Everything about it, the hands are all, all I'd ever really wanted to do since being a child was make things yeah. and combining making things with nature was all, it was just, it made total sense. Yeah. So, um, yeah, straight away, I was instantly in love with it. However, slightly felt frustrated working within the constraints of what was quite a formal, quite mm. an old fashioned sort of, well, all sort of florist shops were at that time. There wasn't anything. I really wanted to be making things more organically, more wild, more yeah. sort of nature led. And that's when I started Swallows and Damsons 12 yeah. years ago. No. And so how long were you in the High Street Florist before you made that leap? It was about three years. Oh, wow, a long time. Mm. Yeah. Well, it was between that one and another one. I worked for three years and okay. I, well, in, in two ways, I was really fortunate to be taught by lots of different approaches. So some very sort of free artistic florists and then also in that time some very sort of old school florists and I'd say that I took from equally from from both of them and the different approaches and I also learned a lot of what I want, didn't want to do yeah. <laughs> which yeah, yeah. when when you start in your own business is as I important. think as important as mm. what you do want to do so um yeah, yeah, yeah it it was um a few years there and then yeah I started Got myself a little shop on Abbeydale Road in Sheffield, which is a really quirky area. It's like in the antiques quarter, so it's full of sort of little antique shops and um, junk shops. It's perfect. Mm. We're perfectly situated. No longer called junk, but vintage. Oh, <laughs> yes, definitely. Yes. How long did it take, Anna, to create a, a good, consistent customer base in Sheffield? Because your... Um, flowers are worthy of you know liberties more more beautiful than what you see in liberties or in any flower <laughs> shop in covent garden uh, i mean you would wipe the floor with them if you moved there <laughs> how long did it take to develop a really good and loyal customer base in in sheffield so it was definitely so we actually the shop that we bought was already an existing florist and of the ilk of the traditional sort of right. small florist. So mm. when we came in, we didn't want to just sort of wipe all that out and lose all the customers and just bring in something completely new for them. But at the same yeah. time, we wanted to obviously stick to what our style was and what we loved and build mm. that. So it was, I mean, it was a good sort of five years, I'd say, of trying to maintain existing customers and switching over and uh, getting a whole new customer base but Instagram and Facebook were as much as I love hate them were such a fantastic tool for really showing showcasing our style and getting the customers in that actually that's what they wanted and even still now every day literally every day we have someone come into the shop and go oh have you just opened 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's amazing that we're just, you know, we're still, people are still finding us. And, mm-hmm. and even now, as floristry has changed considerably, people are walking into the shop or to the doorway currently at the moment and just being like, oh, this is so different. This is so, mm-hmm. this is so unexpected. This is not what we, what we imagine flowers to be. Mm. which still I don't know blows my mind a bit but then I think I'm probably in a bit of a bubble (laughs) and how did you uh, sort of cotton on so early to the whole Instagram thing because I mean now you've got hundreds of thousands of followers and but I mean you were doing it before kind of anyone else I knew was was doing it in a way you were you were straight into that way of getting the word out beyond the streets of Sheffield to certainly UK-wide, if not even further. How did you clock that? Well, it it was a very natural thing, actually, instantly. I think I went in there without a business, any kind of business mentality, mm. <laughs> firstly. And I, um, having done fine art and having, I, I actually focused on photography in fine art. So I, I found myself in, on this platform where it was like a visual diary where it was photography and then I had flowers which you know you instantly got the most perfect subject to photograph okay (laughs) and um I hadn't realized you trained in photography that 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 makes a lot of sense yeah yeah and even though photography from where I trained is because I trained in sort of dark room Mm. very manual photography so it's I, I mean I sometimes feel very disappointed with myself the amount that I just shoot on my phone now yeah but um I think the the way I just saw it as a visual diary and I didn't really think about the implications of building a following or it being a business tool and and actually in the beginning it was very much like that anyway but yeah and then it just built and built and actually it would just blow my mind that people from around the world were yeah were, were following, following and, you yeah and, and, and watching and, you and observing you and being inspired by you because I remember when I last saw you uh, you were here at Perch Hill teaching for a day and then you were off to some incredibly glamorous fashion shoot and, and that seems oh, to be it, what your yeah. work is now is like <laughs> films and fashion and you know gone are the days of of the of the day-to-day flower shop but it's not though that I mean that's it. I mean I do get to do all those things but like it's everything it is I am still in the flower shop and I am still doing just bouquets for people's birthdays and when people have had babies and right. funerals and and all those things and then all of a sudden I'll find myself in a studio in London shooting some incredible yeah installation with and yeah. and it just it still blows my mind. It completely yeah. blows my mind. And it is wonderful. Will you will you just describe to us as much as you can kind of your favorite massive installation that you've ever done? And sort of like oh. the colours and the forms and things. Yeah. I think I really enjoy replicating anything that is sort of replicating what's going on outside, mm. inside, in an unexpected location. So I did some, I did like 45 meters of Mm. meadow for a wedding one time, but the, it wasn't like a big blousy flowery meadow. 
it was pretty much what people may consider weeds, I guess, yes. <laughs> and seed heads and, you know, like rose bay willow herb and dock and yeah. all just completely wild and scrappy. But it was exactly what was going on outside at the time. I think it was September. And it was just you taking things that aren't necessarily yes. deemed a prestigious flower or on their own people might you know saying oh you need to get rid of that and taking them and putting them all together and then creating something that is completely unexpected that I I absolutely love doing that and how how did you do that engineering wise so did you like buy turf that you rolled out and then plug in lots of really lovely seed heads all through it or no we did them in low in very low troughs uh Mm. with chicken wire and Mm. then we you wouldn't really see the trough once you've got all the um the foliage spilling out and the bits and bobs spilling out anyway Gosh, uh chicken gosh. chicken wire is my definitely my favorite go-to mechanism for creating and then down to the sort of more day-to-day tell us all what your favorite flowers are particularly now in spring so you know here we are it's april it is um definitely tulips definitely i just yeah I've I've always loved tulips. I think my nana grew quite a lot when I was younger, and yeah, they've they've always been a strong favourite. And more recently, in the last five years, growing them myself, and the incredible colours and tones that you can get and form. I mean, I'm very much a big double peony style tulip lover. And will you give us your favourite three and then maybe Arthur could as well? And yeah. then I will. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I feel like very obvious and cliche, but definitely La Belle Epoque is my top. Yes. I just love it. Yeah. And then... Why, maybe, why, why? Just because some I people just, might not know. It's the, the colours. And I think the... Um, and I, I'm not very good at technicalities, so excuse me. But you know the depth, the dark stamen inside. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> it's so so beautiful so I, yeah. I love that sort of earthy blush kind of tone with with that dramatic dark center gorgeous yeah yeah so that's number one and then probably copper image ah uh, yeah Ooh. which was my favorite last year yeah they're, yeah they're all they're all like variations on the same thing basically <laughs> okay and, <laughs> and then third probably brownie <laughs> so okay oh I love brownie yeah so but we've got to take you up on the fact that of course they're not as good for the pollinators because Are their nectaries not? have been you see, bred I don't to be secondary petaloids anyway right. it doesn't matter i love them too <laughs> and the brilliant thing because they are sterile or semi-sterile, um, they last much longer. So the doubles yeah. in all our trials here, we found are incredible in the vase because they yeah. just go on and on. But even more, perhaps, they last more like five or six weeks in a container from the moment they emerge mm-hmm. to the moment they go over compared to a single, which is normally three to four weeks. Right. So you get another 10 days or so because they're double because, of course, they sort of keep flowering, wanting to draw the bees <laughs> in to pollinate them, but there's nothing there. So that's the reason that they are such good value container tulips as well as cut flowers. Arthur, tell us, what are, you, what are your three favourites, particularly in the early season? Because we might do another podcast on late tulips. 
Well, my favourite early one is a um, one called Palmyra. Yeah, um, another and double. And it's one that, one that we've sold for a while, but it was one that I haven't grown. Uh, I think I grew my first lot at home last year, and it's the most incredible mulberry red. It's a deeper saturation than anthracite, which is another early double. Um, so that's my favourite early. I love also Exotic Emperor. Um, mm. And we've got the very first one in Bud here. It's not quite out yet, but it will mm. be in a, you know, week You know what? Time. That's been renamed. Why do they do that? It's been renamed it's White nice Valley. I mean, oh. Oh, come I will, on. Well, I'm going to keep <laughs> calling it Exotic Emperor. Emperor. White Valley. <laughs> Give us I think a you break. should keep it. Are you allowed to keep it as Exotic Emperor in the catalogue or no, have you got to legally rename it? Oh, no. So it's, it's oh, in brackets, sin, synonym, Exotic gosh. Emperor. Anyway, sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. Crack on. So they're, they're two, and I can't think of it because I love my late parrot, so I, I'd have to say black parrot, but it is a late one. Well, I'm it's sure an Anna early, likes it as well. An early is parrot, it? even though it's a late mm. overall, right. you're right. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's I love that one. So I'm growing Palmera this year, thanks to you, Arthur, oh, because Anna. I saw Very yours good. last year and I was like, that one, I need that one. So, yes. Because Anna, because you because you came from art, how much do Dutch master paintings influence you? I know in the flower fix you open it and it's the way you've done the photos. Are they reminiscent? I love the fact that you've got a, a pygmy hedgehog surrounded by <laughs> flowers. And I remember when you were at Perch Hill, you were in a panic because you hadn't got any snails. Oh yeah, I needed some snails. And me and Sarah didn't had I? to go and find snails. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think we should mention that before we go on to Sarah's favourite tulips, just because I know that's such a big thing for you. Yeah. And I love that. You know, you walk into your shop and your paintings are there on the wall. It's it's a constant, I think, mental stimulation for you, isn't it, the art? It really is, yeah. And and I think the Dutch masters, actually, they weren't something that I studied when I was doing fine art. I was aware of them, but um, it was only actually as I began to work with flowers that I really got the true appreciation of them. And mm. it is, oh, it's everything. It's everything about them and and what they represent. So life cycles. I love the fact they're not afraid to bring in the more scrappy leaves. You know, training in floristry or when I first started, you were so it was so drummed into you that you know any like imperfections are bad. So a tatty mm-hmm. leaf or a a ripped petal or anything like that you're you're absolutely you have to get rid of that it has to be perfect and i think the dutch masters the way they include the spiders the snails the tatty bits of leaf the decaying materials it is a complete representation of a life cycle of life and death mm. and obviously what what the natural world is and um yeah, I love it. And I love the I, I love the depth as well. So I think in a lot of them it's as much about what they conceal as to what they actually reveal, which, you know, that kind of the darkness um with the flowers bursting out of them is just just beautiful. And you happen to be bracken haired, but you're also a great <laughs> fan of bracken. And coming from a family of bracken haired ladies, yes. um I've always been a, a rather fond of the bracken-haired lady. <laughs> and uh, so so Anna has the most incredible sort of pre-Raphaelite curls. She looks like Venus coming out of the <laughs> oh clams. She does. I wish you could yeah. see her. But anyway, you can. You can look her up um, and, <laughs> on Instagram or wherever. But, but also I remember as well as Arthur saying about us having to go off and find snails to put in her still life, 
flower arrangements. We also had to go and pick bracken yes. and damsons from the hedgerow and then clematis <laughs> vitauba, the wild natural clematis, which actually, because we're on clay and acid soil here, doesn't grow very well here. So we had to go down to the downs and pick it from there. But, you know, all those lovely shapes is what I think of your arrangements as, as very much about and not sort of preened neatness and, and kind of static sort of old-fashioned uh, perfection. And also what comes from monoculture. So, you know, I really feel you have been one of the people to turn the, the massive steaming ship of traditional floristry very slowly around. Mm. And because monoculture was, of course, all that we had available because Constant Spry was so out of fashion and, and you yeah. and your generation of florists have really brought back that total celebration of one crazy beautiful rose, even if it drops two days later, it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to mm. last 10 days in the vase. And it really does feel like a celebration of a garden when you look at your things and a celebration of the hedgerow. Well, thank you very much. It's yeah. quite all right. <laughs> <laughs> with the uh, with the bracken and the and as with the tulips, with my favourite tulips as well. I'm I'm very I'm just always very attracted to earthy tones. I think, and uh, you know, yeah. I love the rusts and the warmth and the. I think probably autumn is one of my favourite seasons for for those things. But yeah, I, I'm just always drawn to those really beautiful earthy earthy colours. Have you got any earthy favourite tulips, Sarah? Well, <laughs> very, very good throwing of the baton there, Arthur. I like that. <laughs> um, I didn't want to leave you out. I know I went a bit off course. <laughs> well, no, you know me. I'm still a bit, a bit slightly stuck on the old Venetian shades. I do love uh, the ones that you mentioned. I love La Belle Epoque, which is the colour of milky coffee, I always think. Mm -hmm. But um, for me, my number one, two and three, I can definitely give you. My number one, well, no, this is no particular order. I think we're allowed to not have them in rank. But Ballerina, which is a tall, lily-flowered. Yeah. I adore scent in a tulip because it's always rather surprising. And Ballerina genuinely smells of freesias. And mm. freesias have always been one of my favourite scents. And so Ballerina is very perennial. It's a really boiled sweet orange. And, and I absolutely love it. And it's fantastic in contrast to the dark, rich ones, the dark, rich crimsons, which actually go well with the cafe au lait coloured ones too, like La Belle Epoque. So I just have to tell you a rather sweet little story about finding the tulip that's now called Sarah Raven, mm. <laughs> which is um, I was in Holland. Sadly, I think Arthur wasn't with me on this particular trip. Um, no, I wasn't. I was... Otherwise, I'd have made you pose amongst them much more. <laughs> yeah, it was pouring <laughs> with rain. I was well, we'd have managed really... it somehow. Grumpy, and I wanted, I wanted a cup of tea and a croquetten, which is what what you tend to get when you're feeling very miserable in the Netherlands. And I was with two Dutch friends of mine, Kareen von Boxtel and Dicky Skipper, and it was freezing and miserable. And I was in the thing about Holland is it's very flat, and and what goes with being very flat is it's very windy. So not only was I standing in a shower, but the the, the shower was being blown into my face mm. at a rate of knots because we were in the middle of this field. Anyway, I was there to try and look at this trial field. And the funny thing is that on the whole, the Dutch tulip trials are then selected by a group of men. Now, I'm afraid I'm going to be rather binary here because what they tended to do was to choose red 
bright red and bright yellow tulips that are very vigorous and strong. And so they're sort of stonking great lollipops of things. And what you do when you're selecting from a trial is you take a blue label and you sort of pronounce that it's yours by pushing this into the ground next to this block of tulips that uh, you particularly fancy. And so I was walking through these grove of blue labels next to what I consider to be, to be honest, utterly hideous tulips <laughs> and thinking, I'm just in the wrong place. It's absolutely miserable. I want a cup of tea and some croquette. And, and then I fell upon this dark, sultry, exotic, glamorous, lily-flowered variety. So again, pointy, skinny and elegant, unlike me. Mm. Um, and really like the darkest, luscious crimson. And of course, there are lily-flowered tulips in purple, which in fact, burgundy turns purple as it goes over. But there was nothing that retains that sort of ebony richness. And so in went my blue label and luckily no one else had claimed it. And so that became the tulip called Sarah Raven. And the only picture, as Arthur says, is of me looking utterly grumpy and utterly miserable, <laughs> leaning down in this block of black tulips <laughs> like old widows. Anyway, um, it, it came back and it's called Sarah Raven and we trialled it. It's very perennial and it's, it's, mar gorgeous. it's marvellous. It really oh. is beautiful. And I love it for a bit of brightness mixed with a new, quite new variety called Slawa. It's probably not how you oh, pronounce yeah. it, which is, again, crimson. But around the outside, it's got that sort of bronzy, coppery, uh, very Anna Brackeny. Oh, that sort sounds of lovely. At the edge of the petal. So it sort of breaks up the slightly funereal feel of Sarah Raven. So those would, those would be my three. And <laughs> so anyway... We've talked rather a lot about flowers, and I'm afraid because to stand with tradition of grow, cook, eat, arrange, we've got to do talking about a little bit on food. And the job that I am doing this week is actually planting my chitted potatoes. Now, one has to be careful how you say that word. <laughs> so they've all been sitting chitting in their egg boxes, and they're now ready to go out because it's, it's been quite sunny and the soil's warmed up. And so I'm going to be putting in Ratte and Belle de Fontenay and another one that's very quick called Foremost. But anyway, are either of you chitting your potatoes and planting potatoes this weekend? No, I, I buy them by the bag, Maris Piper for me. <laughs> I'm not, I'm afraid. <laughs> Anna, but, Anna hasn't got time to grow in potatoes. She's got two children to feed and a florist shop to run. <laughs> Thank you, Arthur. Thank you. <laughs> okay, well, you're not planting them, you're buying them. But give, give me your the favourite way to eat a potato. So I am, I don't... I'm trying to think of the most glamorous answer that I can possibly think of, but I am a big fan of chips. <laughs> I, yeah, uh, good. all my friends know it as well I don't share chips I don't share chips never go You've out with me Arthur's. and buy a chips to share that's not that's not acceptable mm. <laughs> and do you make your own chips I do Anna, or are they oven ready <laughs> no chips? I make my own chips so there we go okay, that is tell slightly us, more tell us. um I parboil them first <laughs> and then very good I do very much like them with rosemary so a rosemary salt which Ooh, I even make my okay. own, so there we go. But it sounds like that you're making roast potatoes, not chips, if well, you forgive me. But... Yeah, just, I guess, long, skinny roast potatoes, aren't they? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and Arthur, what's your favourite potato recipe? I love a good jacket spud, and I okay. like it with a good 
uh, olive oil and then wrapping foil because I like to have a good, good hard baked skin. And then I love it with loads of salad cream, mayonnaise, and prawns. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Good traditional style. Right. Well, I'm afraid I'm going to go a little bit more potsy, but not much. And so I'm going to finish with my recipe, um, which is I never know how to pronounce it, but I think it's called Hasselback potatoes, but it's C H at the end. And it's basically with all the ones that I've talked about, which are those waxy varieties. So the ones that that both Anna and Arthur have talked about need to be floury because Mm. chips need to be floury so that they absorb lots of oil mm. and then go crunchy and baked potatoes need to be floury so they go fluffy when you put the butter in or the olive oil in or whatever but the ones uh, for my recipe need to be waxy and what you do is you just cut with a with a serrated knife normally not a sharp knife two-thirds of the way through all the way down so you've got the long those salad potatoes and you and you cut these little fans almost like cutting a fan but as I say they mustn't go all the way through and then what I do is I poke in rosemary or sage or perhaps myrtle is a is a herb I love very much at the moment um, oh, or myrtle. bay is another one and then I I heat up the oven and whack them in and the good thing about them rather than roast potatoes is they're much quicker to cook because of course you've created this fan so they sort of fan out and then once they've been in for 20 minutes, I just put a bit of flaky salt over, a little bit more oil, put them back in and oven right up to the top. And so then you get this really crunchy, delicious, herby potato, which is quicker to cook than either a chip or a roast oh, potato. Oh, amazing. Oh, I love so that. come along. Yeah. We're going to be having that. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange. And thank you to Anna. We talked about her amazing book about flower engine called The Flower Fix. So next week, it's blossom time. And of course, apple blossom is just coming up to its peak, the most beautiful plant that you can have two goes at. So one at blossom time and of course, one at fruit time. And we're also going to chat about pumpkins and squash. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahoven.com.